All right. I would count down when you're ready. Oh my God. Oh, I was like, I'm waiting. It's, it's like when, when you're always like, oh, an adult should be here. And I'm like, no, I'm an adult. This is me. You're 31. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. In five, four, three, two, one. should we talk about since Mav's not here? I don't know. Like, like we could go wild. We could talk about, I don't know. I actually have no idea besides what we're going to talk about. I, <laughs> I was, boring. was like, we're going to talk about how you really needed a stiff drink conversation <laughs> as the podcast I, with drinking and swearing. <laughs> you know, it's very funny. I can't remember the last time I recorded while like doing anything, approaching drinking anything other than water. Really boring fun fact for our listeners. I think I've turned into like someone else. I just was like knitting while watching like a BBC miniseries yesterday. And I was like, who have I become? I've taken up quilting. So somewhere in the past month, it was like we had the old people fuck episode. And I was like, yep, let's just go for it. Let's just embrace it early. I've learned that there's no difference once you get older between the person you are now and the person you will be later. So bring on all the fun hobbies that are usually coded as geriatric. (laughs) Did you see that I made a gardening Instagram post this afternoon with all the plants I'm trying to grow in my front yard? Incredible. I did that. Yeah. Bird watching. And I mean, honestly, this is kind of like another, we're going to call it quote unquote, old, old people coded topic episode this week, right? Uh, I mean, I'm thinking anytime of. I've ever been to like a, a theatrical production, I've always been the youngest person in the audience by far. When I went to the movie to see this particular topic this week was definitely the youngest person in the audience by far. But I think maybe we brought some guests that can hopefully like challenge that convention right you know i also okay so that's a transition to say this week's topic is hercule poirot agatha christie's famous detective not mystery fiction in general we'll do that one day but this is about one of the biggest detectives in all literature and it's funny because you know how i wasn't allowed to read a lot of like young adult fiction when i was in middle school i discovered agatha christie and i read like all of her novels that the middle school library had so i was an agatha christie fan before i was a teenager i was still a preteen and and yeah i was like one of the youngest people in my theater to see a haunting in venice which is how we're justifying this episode but maka you you found us some guests who are also like agatha christie super hands fans and maybe also hate kenneth Branagh's mustache yes i will say that i did name our when to meet scheduler for this the we hate kenneth Branagh fan club because as the listeners are learning when i pick the topic i stack the deck with guests who agree with me so i brought welcome back to the podcast what i would call my personal inspiration for deciding that we should do a poirot agatha christie episode and that's my partner Lindsay. So welcome to the podcast, Lindsay. It's great to be here. I have a lot of opinions. And Poro is my favorite uh, detective of 
all time and uh, all time best Agatha Christie character for sure. So very exciting to rip Kenneth Branagh a new one. Yeah, yeah. And then I would also say when I was thinking of people who might be good potential guests for the podcast, I saw a friend post a particularly scathing article called I Will Not Forgive and I Will Not Forget Them Giving Kenneth Branagh's Dash a backstory. And then I asked my friend Tiffany if she would like to also come rag on Kenneth Branagh for an hour. And she said yes. So welcome to the podcast, Tiffany. Hello. Thanks for having me. I love nothing more than complaining about Kenneth Branagh's mustache. And then our final guest is someone who's very familiar to the podcast and our podcast. I would call an our unofficial sixth co-host, uh, Steph. Yep. Hi there. Hi. Yep. I'm happy to talk about Hercule Poirot. Very excited about this podcast. But and I guess wonderful. it's a partner. It's a partner podcast, right? Because you are Mav's partner. I oh, my yes. partner. This, this is true. Yes. <laughs> She's gonna just try and like disconnect yourself from him, like Sully, for a second. Yeah, there. I know. It's that's weird. I think this is my first solo recording. You don't hate the newer movies as much as I do. Mav says, right? Probably. Yeah. I doubt. <laughs> <laughs> It was kind of, yeah, it was kind of a little, I guess, yeah, I wouldn't, hate is a very strong word. I don't know. I mean, I'm a big uh, Agatha Christie fan. I read a lot of her books, like, in my childhood, actually. It's been a while since I've read, I've read any of, well, actually, I did read, oh, shoot, Death in the Library, actually, uh, recently. But, yeah, I'm just a general fan of Hercule Poirot. Maybe not quite as much as Miss Marple, but... So, but anyway, I, I definitely don't appreciate Branagh's mustache as much as others' mustaches who were portraying <laughs> a Perot. That's, but that's the extent of my feelings for that. I feel like more than the mustache, and this kind of happens in the same scene in, in Death on the Nile, is that they give him this like female love interest backstory, <laughs> Catherine woman, which just for, for all listeners who don't know, Hercule Poirot has no like backstory of any great loves in his life. The only person he expresses a remote interest in is the Countess Rosikoff, who he meets a few times, and he mostly just likes her because she's a villain, thinks she's very clever. And and he never expresses an interest in women, ever. Uh, he expresses much more interest in his friend Hastings than he ever does in a woman. So I think there's a lot to potentially unpack there. But the fact that they canonically tried to make him heterosexual, I will not stand by that. I think they had the photo of it in the first one, in the first mm-hmm. new movie. Like, he well, Catherine, gazes yeah. at, yeah, he gazes yeah. at the photo. And I was just like, this is the worst thing ever. No, Oof. you could tell they were going to go in that direction. And then they went full war backstory, which is also super incorrect implying that he was in, I think, the First World War, because during the First World War, he was already a retiree, you know, living in England during the war. That's when the Mysterious Affair of Styles take place. So very factually inaccurate. So let's back up for one second, just because unfortunately, not everyone who listens to this podcast probably knows Agatha Christie or Poirot like as much as we do. So Lindsay, you mentioned the Mysterious Affair of Styles, and that's like his first appearance, right? And then Agatha Christie just like wrote these novels for like decades. And Hercule Poirot is a Belgian detective retired from the Belgian police force. And now he's like the world's greatest detective. And anyone else want to talk about what like is important? You feel like is an important part of his core character or like important, you know, things people should just like know to understand and be a part of this conversation, even if they are only vaguely aware of like Agatha Christie or Poirot, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of the 
stereotypical asshole detective, right? He's vain. And when we say we hate the mustache, it's not that we hate mustaches in general. He's famous for his mustache, right? It's like perfect. He takes really good care about it. But really, it's the symbol of his obsession with himself in a lot of ways. And the fact that something like a contemporary movie might use it as a tragic backstory is extra frustrating when what Lindsay was saying at the beginning, the fact that we know nothing about Poirot is a big part of Poirot as a character. He's just this big symbol of himself. He's what he is as a character is his mannerisms and his mannerisms are, are that he, you know, cares a lot about his clothes and his mustache and his looks. And he transfers that to like, he's obsessed with his career and with being a detective and being like really detail oriented and it all ties together as a part of this kind of very surface level character avatar i think kind of branching off of that is that pro is no action hero i think you know kind of off of those core character traits he likes to sit in his chair and think about a crime if at all possible he will get anybody else to go out and gather evidence for him. He likes to let his little gray cells do the work, and he's not the kind of person who would ever try to get himself dirty. Um, so, you know, I think another thing that really upsets me about the Kenneth Branagh adaptations is that Kenneth Branagh playing Poirot really tries to make him an action hero who chases after people and shoots guns, which is not something you'd ever see Hercule Poirot do in the books. Also, maybe you shouldn't give an action sequence to Josh Gad, but that's a very specific <laughs> like, 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 not in specifically like Josh Gad himself but like make him play like the clumsy like goofy character of like it, it's barely an action sequence like you could have used that time to actually like follow up on the themes that are present in murder or in the orient express the setup was good you could have nailed it but you didn't anyway this is just i this is just my petty little grievance no one else cares well, actually no, maybe I, you I, I, care. we care and that's we care. why we're gonna that's why we're here. rant on it for an hour <laughs> <laughs> And I think that this is a great way also for the listeners to learn a little bit more about Poro and Agatha Christie in general is if our guys could maybe talk to us about, you know, their first introduction, the, the first books that they read and yeah, their familiarity and why this is a, a franchise that they hold so much affinity for and why we all carry so much anger in our hearts about the Kenneth Branagh adaptations, right? Because I think you only get really angry about something you really love. I can go. I grew up reading these books. My mom loves Agatha Christie. She's her favorite author. She reads them in the Chinese adaptations. But when I was a kid, she bought me like a bunch of them from a garage sale, kind of those really crappy dime novel um, versions that have great covers, like the illustrated covers. And I don't know if I remember like which ones I read. I would just read them because they were there. And that's kind of what you do as a kid. But I always loved the Miss Marple books. I loved Poirot. And then I didn't start watching any adaptations until I was older, probably college, which are all interesting in their own way. They're they're all terrible in their own way. And some of them are kind of good. As for like the Bone adaptations, I want to say that the newest one didn't bother me that much as an adaptation. I don't think it's like a good interpretation of Poirot, but as an adaptation that stands by itself as a movie, as a spooky Halloween thing. I thought it was fine. Like, I enjoyed myself at the theater. Would I really consider that a traditional Agatha Christie story with ghosts? Question mark. Probably not. But I mean, the last, the Nile was horrendous, like unwatchable. And the first <laughs> one was not great either. Those were much, much more frustrating than this last one. 
like if you're going to be different at least be different enough to be interesting is always my opinion and i don't need straight like i don't need full loyalty to the original text i just need something that works emotionally and plot wise on the screen and this last one i feel like mostly does it so like kenneth brana's action hero paro bothered me the least in this one because i thought the movie worked more than the other two I think part of that was that you just made it different enough that it, I, I, I also agree it bothered me the least because it just basically was its own thing. So, you know, for, for those who are not familiar, Haunting in Venice is based on the book Halloween Party, which is set in the English countryside. Almost the entire cast of characters is different. The murder victim is different. So it's so insanely different of a book. There's no seances or mystical, really much anything. It's so different that it was a pretty enjoyable sit because you were basically just watching an hour and 47 minutes of creepy four that had a mystery worked in there and I, I wasn't even mad at it so i think i definitely feel that way also because i think death on the nile was so disappointing because it bared enough resemblance to the actual story that it was infuriating to see all the things that were just absolutely destroyed about it but this i think you could just kind of sit back and say ah he's just having fun now well maybe here's a better way to phrase this question is, does it feel like a piece of fan fiction that could have been ghostwritten? Or does it still feel like it is outside the realm of Agatha Christie's works featuring Poro? It feels quite outside, I think, because of the, like, of the big kind of what if of the movie is, are the ghosts real or not? And you can explain it away through the plot, but... It's like it plays on this idea of like big question mark. Are there real ghosts? Are these symbolic ghosts or was it all like a hoax? But like in Agatha Christie, you would never have real ghosts. There would never even be a question of real ghosts. Like she was not that kind of writer. She had no interest in that kind of theme. So I think that as plots go, that's where the biggest diversion is and like vibes also, I don't want to say it's like interesting, but like what Brana's adaptations are doing is they're kind of adding this this kind of backdrop of World War One and World War Two to these stories, which, by the way, that was very present in the Agatha Christie books in general, just in a very different way. Um, she was writing during World War Two and he's adding it in a much more kind of how we contemporary people tend to think of war fiction sort of way. And whether or not it works is another question, but it is, I feel like that is also a huge diversion from what Christy would have been doing at the time with how she, not just how she treated Poirot, but also like how she thought of British society, which is like kind of a, one of the modern parts of Agatha Christie that we don't like, right? She's wildly classist and fairly racist in her books. Yeah. So I think... Yeah. Just like the striations of society, the way that the text, the, this contemporary text treats the war um, and ghosts is all quite different from Christie or classic Christie. I feel like someone, she rang a bell and was like, Hannah should speak on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, since you bring it up, like the thing that bothers me about these, less so with Heine events, because I feel like it was more sensible of the contemporary moment around it and not just looking back at the past, but like, Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile, all the original novels are filled with racist 
stereotypes. Agatha Christie has a very imperialist view of the world. Like, you know, she was married to an archaeologist and like traveled, which gave her, you know, real life experience to write details of Poro and other adventures out in the world. But also you can see like, you know, how she thought as a British subject. And I mean, one thing that Murder on the Orient Express did when like, the newest one is it actually was like, like a big theme of the original novel is like America, right? Like America is diverse. There are all like sorts of classes and races in America, but like understanding that whiteness is a sliding scale. There's like no one who's not white to represent America in the original novel, really. And so like, you know, there, there were things he did to modernize it, but then he like just would not reflect on that big part of Agatha Christie. And I feel like when you're studying something, like when you're making a movie called Murder on the Orient Express or Death on the Nile, and you're adapting material that has that, you really need to think about that and consider it and how to you know, talk about it in the year of 2023. Well, I suppose I'm being unfair. The year of 2017 and the year of like 2020. But nevertheless, the point still stands. So that's, that's one thing that really bothered me about these adaptations. And actually an adaptation that I thought tried to do at least what I felt like, you know, Bra should have done was, has anyone seen the miniseries, the ABC Murders from 2018, where John Malkovich actually plays Poro. I feel like that actually, you know, like Agatha Christie, I actually was reading (laughs) The Big Four, which, you know... Oh, I love that one. (laughs) Screams, like, Orientalism, though. Um, It was just basically... She tried to write a spy novel. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth. But at the very end of my copy, there's an essay called Korean Poro by Agatha Christie, and she's explained, like, how she, like, came to write The Mysterious Parasols, and she said, it was early autumn of 1914. Belgian refugees were in most country places why not have a belgian refugee a former shining light of the belgian police force when she's thinking about like how did i come up with this kind of detective and so she just kind of was like this is what i saw he was a belgian refugee but this abc murders adaptation of 2018 really thinks about poro's position as a refugee and also thinks about contemporary british society in 2018 and you know tries to write something very current and in fact one of the final lines Poirot says is like you know we are too nostalgic for the past we imagine it as a kinder gentler place but the past was cruel and I think some of the darker elements of that adaptation that don't really exist in the book are trying to bring home to the cozy mystery people of which I really am one because what do I turn to read when I want a cozy thing with my knitting is you know like actually like this time was pretty bad and like British society was not great and you should do some self-reflection anyway rant over I, I really see what you're saying with a lot of that and I think Orient Express is a, is a really great example because you know I was talking to Monica about this I think last night is you know if you've seen the movie you see the young guy Book you know who's like this char- side character in the book Monsieur Book is an elderly Belgian guy and he is basically just spends the entire book following Poirot around yelling racial stereotypes you know just i mean not even ra- racial destroyer but just about different yeah because the italian must have committed the crime because it was done with a knife italians love using the knife or you couldn't have bribed the british guy because the british are so unapproachable no one would even try to bribe a british you know he just follows him around saying things like that for the entirety of the of the story and i think it's just so interesting how you can kind of then take that and then adapt it in this way that doesn't really acknowledge the fact that the original book was just so 
riddled with these ideas that nobody ever strongly takes any kind of opposition to. And as a side note, I do really like it in the original novels. Obviously, this is the 19, early 1900s, whenever she uses the word queer to mean strange. Um, That always just gives me a little laugh every single time I hear it. But definitely the fact that it was like a cozy thing for like generally intended really wealthier English people makes it really interesting because they do also reflect very positively kind of on the past, even in the books. So adapting that to modern times and kind of recognizing that that wasn't necessarily the right to do, I think is uh, is a really good way to go about it. And that's something that I really want to talk about is I think I'm maybe the least experienced on, on Vox Pop. Sometimes we call this the uh, who's going to play the dumb guy. I, I would say that I'm coming in as the, the inexperienced dumb guy when it comes to Poro in terms of I've seen a, a Kenneth, now two Kenneth Branagh movies and I've made it through, what shall we call it, 1.75, 1. 1.9, 1.9, 1.9 uh, Agatha Christie novels, but I have seen quite a few Agatha Christie community theater productions. Uh, uh, I took her to see Mousetrap when we were in Maine. <laughs> and so I will say when you watch Agatha Christie as a community theater production, there is something where you think about, yeah, the romantic- romanticizing of this British aristocracy that makes all of these feel so much more like a Hardy Boys or a Nancy Drew without realizing like that these are murder mysteries. And something about the idea of us calling murder mysteries cozy. And when we think about the amount of people that love true crime podcasts and, and things that like something hasn't really changed. But our conversations, Lindsay was like, oh, yeah, in the original version of King in Venice, which is a Halloween party, the murder is a child and their head is just like in a vat of like bobbing for apples. And I was like, excuse me, they chop a child's head. No, they don't chop it. They just, what? They, no, she just pushes her head under the water and yes. drowns her. Uh, you drown a child. <laughs> yes, you know, yes, yes. yes someone drowned a child. Cozy. Okay. That's I mean, not cozy at all. <laughs> that was one of her last stories, you know. So, so she, she got canceled for killing it. No, she exactly. No, I'm just saying she was getting on. She was running out of ideas. Okay? It was and not it, one of her best ones. It was, no. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I think we can all agree on that. And then I was I looking at all the marketing. I was like, why would he have picked one? Like, it's not like this was a well-known story. No. You know, I can list my top five, ten favorite Hercule Poirot stories, and this would certainly not be among them, you know? So I was like, I mean, and now seeing it, it's like, oh, well, he just he wanted to just make his own thing, you know? Sure. And he just stuck a, he stuck a name on it. But what was really funny, though, is I recently I was at the airport and I saw somebody with a book, a haunting in Venice book. Actually, I haven't gotten to the bottom of this yet. I was doing some research. I think because they're remarketing, you know, Halloween party is a haunting in Venice. But are they actually changing the contents of the book at all? Or is it just a Halloween party with that name? Because, you know, Halloween party doesn't take place in Venice. It has nothing to do with that story. So is it just the original story, but they just called it, it that? Of the or is it or it's an entire new one? I'm not honestly sure, but I thought that was really interesting. They were doing whole new marketing campaign around this fictionalized it's, it's all fiction but you know the idea that maybe they just control f every time that <laughs> venice what? that would be wild if they just put that title on <laughs> well, I, well, it, it kind of looks like it i was really surprised Amazing. by that but i just was like people are gonna open this and they're not really gonna get what they <laughs> bargained for because this is like a whole freaking other thing and that um, i don't know going back to what monica was saying though about nostalgia Interestingly enough, one of Agatha Christie's book is about the negative aspects of nostalgia. There's this Miss Marple story about like they return to this like old genteel hotel where everything is exactly the same as it was 
and the vibe is like, you know, pre-war. Um, and then it turns out to be kind of this really sinister, insidious thing as to why it has remained the same. And the whole theme of the book is that we shouldn't kind of hold up the like we should move on. Which is interesting because you don't get that vibe from a lot of Agatha Christie books. Like a lot no, of she's books very nostalgic. Very, yeah, yeah, they are very nostalgic. She is really like, oh, back when we used to be able to get good servants, blah 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 blah. But this particular <laughs> book, I can't remember the title right now. But it was a Miss Marple book. Um, it something hotel, I think. It is very much about, and and it's such a cyn- is cynical book in some ways, but it's also kind of one of the more interesting ones too, where it's just hey, we can't hold on to the past. Like, there's danger in that, and it can be weaponized against us, which, I mean, we see that all the time now. Oh, you're thinking about at Bertram's Hotel, I think. Bertram's Hotel, thank you. I wonder also, when did she write that? Just because, you know, I think just going off of what Hannah was saying is that so much of the later Poirot books do 100% deal with the war, but I really like the way you said that it was different because a lot of, like, the movie adaptations really deal with, like, the war itself, like, soldiers, you know, this physical fighting aspect, you know, there's a doctor, we ask PTSD, and the books aren't really like that. It deals a lot more with the economic and social ramifications of the war, like, if, I don't know if you guys have read like Dead Man's Folly. I think it's a really good mm-hmm. example. The story is based around the fact that, you know, it's post-war. The younger generation is so different and they're all traveling around Europe and being in hostels and this giant house has been turned into a hostel and, you know, th- those kids play prominently, you know, in the story. Or, or, you know, I think a lot of the later ones post-World War II also talk about the economic changes that have taken place, you know, uh, and how things are just getting so much work and society is just kind of kind of falling apart part falling by the wayside because of you know all of these economic and social changes and i think there's perhaps an underrated amount of economic and social commentary going on related to the war because i mean you can't really have economic and social commentary at that period in time without kind of indirectly talking about how those changes are related to these massive events but it it is very you know interesting because she does do so much of that and in the Poirot ones you don't really hear a lot of like oh let's move forward it is very much a lot of like well back in the day things Mm -hmm. did not be like this could get good help and you know uh, you know rich people had money and it was great you know and the manor houses were well taken care of because these people had so much money things like such an ongoing theme is these manor houses that have fallen into disrepair because the old families no longer can afford to keep them up totally by the way at bertram's hotel was published november 15th 1965 i don't know that all the time i I looked it up um so it's it's an older one well a later one not an older one technically it's a newer one probably makes sense then maybe she really just changed her tune but you know what's hilarious like what's hilarious is that i i taught a mystery fiction class and i began in the 19th century with like you know edgar Allan poe and wilkie collins and moved up to conan doyle who you know, bridge the gap between the 19th century and Agatha Christie when she started writing in the early 20th century and Agatha Christie and so on. And like, they're really just like, is this like continuance of, you know, like manor house. <laughs> it's in trouble. You know, like Wilkie Collins, which Agatha Christie read, literally has like the moonstone. The manor house is like around a place with like shifting sands and stuff. And that plays into a big part. And also metaphorically, it's on shaky ground. I promise I won't talk too much about the 19th century on this podcast. But Agatha Christie like does mention like the Victorian. Like I, I swear somewhere in a Miss Marple book, there's a line about like, we're really Victorian on the inside or something um because 
you know, it, it wasn't that long ago. Like when Agatha Christie disappeared, Conan Doyle had a glove of hers and tried to use a medium to find her. That's how close Agatha Christie was to the Victorian period. I'm done now. That's cool. And I didn't know that. So there were some seances going on. Oh, like Conan Doyle was like really into spiritualism. Like the 19th century definitely had a spiritualism movement going on. You might have really liked which it then. Well, not to get too academic, but I mean, when we talk about the history of spiritualism and the history of science when it comes to like our myth of photographic truth, right? Originally, when photography was introduced, it was this idea that you can have visual proof of something. And then almost immediately, everyone was like, yeah, but we can also make it look like ghosts in these pictures. Like, and that just like, it it has always been existing as this sort of like photography is a pseudoscience, but that spiritualism is very connected to that period itself and this idea of like evidentiary proof itself that that makes it feel like when we talk about um, detective fiction and this idea of can be what can be known and what counts as evidence and and maybe the reason that we also the idea of these people can be so brilliant right that they can put all of the clues together they can understand all of the evidence in a way that that we cannot that there is something that is maybe not actually visible or it is all visible all along and we just aren't perceptive enough to see it yeah like edinburgh which is where conan Doyle is from is like kind of the central in my mind, on the literary aspect, like the central birthplace of this, because all these huge scientific discoveries were being made at the University of Edinburgh. Also, people were digging up dead bodies, right, <laughs> to, to, to be able to find out these scientific achievements. And that's where we get Jekyll and Hyde, right? That's what where we get, what's the book, Confessions of a Sinner, something along those lines, which is kind of like one of the first kind of, is there a demon inside of me contemporary works because like when you're learning something new it and it completely shakes up what you believe like kind of like after watergate a bunch of people started to believe in conspiracy theories because once you hear a piece of truth that sounds like a conspiracy theory everything starts to sound like conspiracy theories and i think it is kind of interestingly tied into the history of mystery fiction although Probably less than Agatha Christie's work because she seems so practical in a way as a writer. Like so many of her adaptations add in kind of this mysticism, especially around the Oriental stuff. (laughs) It's just like, oh, yes, we are on the Nile. There are like mysterious snakes that appear out of nowhere or whatever. But like when it comes to her actual writing, I guess we get the vibes of it. Like she'll put something out like in the big four. And then like at the end, it's like, oh, but actually there's a logical explanation for everything. She always seemed to kind of come back to that unless I'm forgetting some sort of a counterexample. No, I think that you're right about that. The big four is a, is a crazy example because it was such a unsequitur kind of book where like, that, you know, in, and we were speaking earlier about how the whole point of Poirot is he doesn't really have a backstory. You, most of Poirot's backstory comes out of that book. Um, you know, she just decides that she's going to kind of write the spy intrigue kind of novel where, you know, there's all of these new developments about these characters that never get mentioned again. But definitely, you know, I I think that she really resolves things always by explaining very clearly how it could have realistically happened. 
you know, in any kind of like mysticism. I think you can make a case that like Halloween Party uh, is an example of a book where there's some elements of that, you know, there's some elements of people kind of behaving in this kind of specific way. I, I'm thinking kind of towards the end of the book, you know, I think she can have some streaks of that, but she never resolves a book that way. And she's very practical as a writer. She likes order. Well, at least Perot does. Order and method and, and the yeah. little gray cells. Yeah. I mean, oh my goodness, I'm going to make a very bad Foucauldian argument, which you should stop me. But, you know, like like starting in the 19th century and I think carrying on, like there was more attempts to put things in order and categorize them to like dangerous points again. Like early anthropology is not it, everyone. Like going back to Murray on the Orient Express, if you read that and those like stereotypes about nationalities and then like you read some early like anthropology of people trying to categorize you know people from different nations or races they look about the same so i think that that, that's the negative side of the classification but also you know there's a sort of like attempt for order and i think that also too like maybe gets kind of at the coziness again thinking about someone like monica said not to cite scholars and here i am being like oh and remember when i Studied Victorianism. You know, D.A. Miller wrote the book on mystery fiction, focusing on the Victorian period and thinking about like, well, why do we like this stuff? And what does order bring? And like, is that maybe part of the coziness that like the police or in this case, really, you know, like the independent inspector is here to step in and make sure that order and truth are upheld. I do think that some of that comes from Brenna's Brenna's monologue in the new Haunting in Venice, right? He talks a bit about if there are spirits, then there then there must be God. And if there is God, then there must be this idea of order and justice and that bad people are brought to justice, which oh, okay. is the most heavy handed. But I will yet, say it does come from a Shakespearean background that loves to hit you over the head with what the message of things should be. So, you know, I will say in, in these adaptations, bro, I think one of the other frustrating changes is a lot of like dark nights of the soul where he's like very jaded in a way that he absolutely is not even at any point in any of the books you know he doesn't do a ton of introspection ever you know he just feels the way he feels about himself about the world he does have a very strong internal sense of justice he thinks that murder is abhorrent in pretty much any circumstance perhaps excluding you know what happens at the end of orient express um and he's very firm on that very consistently and He's really his. I think his greatest belief in a higher power is belief is in his, in his own abilities, really. And I, I feel like so much of this like tortured Poirot character who likes to talk to people about God and things like that is just not something that you would ever see Agatha Christie writing. Well, no, but I also think that's when you sit and read an Agatha Christie or, or listen to an audiobook. I don't know that contemporary audiences necessarily want to be told that they are dumb consistently for not picking up on things by a very sassy little Belgian man, right? Like, <laughs> well, I, I think that's part of the joy of reading the books, though, is basically being told that you are not as smart as Hercule Poirot. Right. And I want to be read that's like all, Well, that's all mystery stories to an extent, right? That's Columbo. That's Poker Face did quite well. We've got the glass onion knives out thing now. I think people like detective stories in it obviously goes in phases as a, as like popular culture. But what you were saying earlier about kind of order and re restoring order, that is very much an interesting concept when it comes to genre fiction like this, where you've got a murder and then it gets solved. Person's carted away. It's this very safe belief, right? It's also a dangerous belief. 
as we all know, Agatha Christie shows it herself a lot with a murder is a murderer. But when it comes to things like some of her short stories that aren't mysteries, the Golden Ball collection, like there's a whole short story about how a woman falls in love out of her class <laughs> and how it's going to destroy everyone's life. And the happy ending is that she decides to like forsake the guy and marry her class, right? And like, that's the happy ending of the moment. That's the res restoration of order. So obviously during different eras, we have different modes of considered charitable. In the, a recent Emma adaptation, like Emma treats her best friend very differently than in the book. Yes. <laughs> the book, it's like, yes. oh, thank God I didn't marry off this guy with this woman who was the daughter of a shoemaker, right? But like in the movie, like if that happened, Emma would immediately be completely unlikable at the end of the film. We can't like these guidelines are shifting over time the way we talk about race. I mean, talk about the retitling of Agatha Christie books, right? To take out literal racial slurs. And this is also an interesting conversation of like people talk a lot about like what whether or not we should like fiddle with dead writers works and to me you know it's a complex conversation but to me usually my response to that is well was the writer trying to use that word <laughs> to mean this like if that writer thought that having that title would keep their book off shelves forever would they still be like yeah let's go with that title because some people would right some people are using the slur to use the slur and some people like at the time, it was a slur, but not as bad as it is now. And like, if you put that book on a shelf in a library, well, you would not get that book on a shelf in the library, right? So in the same way as language changes, our own understanding of what is justice changes, our own understanding of what is appropriate changes. Like, this is a really interesting lens to look at kind of this comfort structure of detective stories like who's a villain who's the bad guy in this situation i don't know if any of you watch father brown but like there are gay people in father brown and their main characters and they're like good and then you kind of think about like the original father brown stories and you're like well if a gay character showed up in that in those stories like they would not be they would not be shown this way right but part of adapting things to a contemporary audience is either addressing it, like like you were mentioning earlier, or, you know, taking it out and doing something new with it, both of which I think are legitimate ways to approach things. But definitely worth a, a conversation worth having, especially about books that are older and that were written under a different social context. I just want yeah, to, as a footnote, say in, in relation to And Then There Were None, which was originally titled, well, I'm not going to say it, but after a minstrel song, like it was retitled like in the U.S. as it was being published in like 1940, like it was already being retitled once it was titled. And I think that actually like I believe it was the French edition didn't change the title until very recently like France. <laughs> I, I think the interesting thing about like that minstrel title is it just it didn't really have a lot of relationship to the book like Agatha Christie just likes to use those kinds of titles like Three Blind Mites is another good example or Hickory Dickory Dock. She just really enjoys using those like, like quirky songs as titles and a lot of times they don't even have a strong relation to the, well, that the books themselves. I, I would argue that that this ha does have a strong relation and like some like like critics have written on like how that song, which is used throughout the novel in the all the editions I've seen, except the one in the archives of the library that had the original title, uses 10 Little Indians instead. 
which, you know, keeps colonial aspects of it. Like it, like, I, I think that like, this is kind of central to like Christie's worldview and like, it, you know, really like colors the novel. And like, I think in some way, I mean, I don't want that slur or, you know, any slurs like in inner, in my entertainment or like repeated for no reason, but I do think it's worth acknowledging in the way that like, you know, I think HBO max back in the day when that service existed, Mm-hmm. had like a statement in front of Gone with the Wind. Like it's worth right. acknowledging like, hey, you know, you're you're probably reading this because Agatha Christie like wrote like major puzzles, but also there's this historical context and it's important to keep this in mind. Cause I, I definitely will say like the difference between reading these books for me as an adult is like I've now been trained to be like, oh, look at all this like like all these colonial attitudes look at like how like creepy Poirot is toward women in my opinion like he like like how do these men talk about like these women like like let me analyze these like this part of the text but whenever I was in middle school you know I was just like racing through these being like how can I solve the mystery like who is the murderer and I really wasn't thinking about what I was absorbing so you know definitely like fair to kind of say I I personally feel like leaving the original text as untouched as possible it is probably the best route and i think disney you know has done a similar thing too with like their very old cartoons is basically just saying like yeah obviously this is messed up that people are depicted this way or stereotypes were said this way but you know to just hide it away forever is the same as uh, pretending that these things never existed right you know i think yeah exactly i think it's undeniable that agatha christie you know completely changed the game i would argue that like i can name off time i had three of her reveals for her poro reveals that i think are the best reveals of all time ever done but and i do think that you know keeping that in the context you know or in express being a great example there's so much stereotyping there's so much kind of shittiness that goes on in that book but like it's a really incredible story you know i think it's worth acknowledging and kind of talking through but you know i can definitely see the point of like you know keeping the original text original while still being able to have this important dialogue sure. I, say that for the I, think I think the go on. Oh, I think it's a conversation about utility, right? First of all, like Disney, there's certain Disney things like Song of the South is not available. Like it is, there are certain textures. So racist that they do just hide it yeah. away. And they had protests when Song of the South came out, right? But I think like the conversation about approaching these books with this conversation is about utility. What books are on the shelves at Barnes & Noble? Like, is Barnes & Noble going to be able to sell a, a book under an old title, right? versus same thing with like what books are you giving to your kids this is was the conversation with kind of the changing of the roll doll books right these books that are given to children they're handed to children they're on they're in kids libraries they're not coming with context or anyone sitting down with a kid to have the context in an academic setting when you're watching gone with the wind like i totally get that but like when they show White Christmas on like on the television at Christmas time, they do cut out the blackface, right? I don't think all versions should have the blackface scrubbed. I definitely don't think that. But when we're approached, like there's, and I don't want to sound like a major capitalist here, but like if like it would be very hard for, and then there were none to exist under its current its original title and have had the legacy that it's had in places that are not France. Oh, no, I don't think it should exist under its original title. I think there just should be an acknowledgement of its history to clarify, because even if you get rid of the title, which they have always in the U.S., 
and you change the words of the song, which they did, there's still a lot of colonial stuff in there that they just kind of leave untouched that still should be acknowledged. And I totally agree. Like we should not be handing children books um, or people books without warnings um, with stuff still in there that would hurt them. But I do we think do. that like, like we still give yeah. Agatha Christie books to kids okay. and like yeah, there's exactly. a lot of like very racist stuff. In, yeah, in and that's, yeah. And that's why I'm saying like, like I think we need to like, I mean, if I were a publisher, I think it would be worthwhile putting like some acknowledgement of this up front since it is there. But well, I'm not a publisher. Like, cause you know, like there, there are all sorts of books that like have some, now a million people don't read them, but they have full words and stuff, you know, that you can read and like get some context since, you know, they're already going to be like, I, I think it would have been useful for me to like have read like a full word about the Orient Express that's like, hey, this was the historical context. You know, you could read more about like X, Y, and Z if you were interested. Because you know, like, that the Orient Express is not just, oh, a cute train story. Like, why is yes. it called the Orient Express? Which yes. I think brings me to this, like, when we talk about adaptations and we talk about the fact that we now have the chance to update or create commentary or engage with this material. Why do we feel like the Kenneth Branagh films are still sort of not doing that, right? Because a lot of the things that we've talked about in terms of updating are interesting ways to continue to have conversations about war and class consciousness, but not necessarily conversations about race. For example, Lindsay and I were having a conversation last night where I was like, oh, really? They made the women of color in Death of the Nile singers? Like they couldn't pick like, I don't know, something else that didn't feel like it was still incredibly racialized within like the original context of the story when they create this adaptation and the ways that if you are going to play really fast and loose with these characters in the way that a haunting in venice does you have the chance to to wreck so many of these mistakes and divorce them from that material they have tragic endings in the movie to some degree comparatively let's let's, well let's not spoil anything about death in the nile Um, yeah for listener context the reason that i said that i have read (laughs) 1.9 agatha christie books is that Lindsay and i are currently listening to death of the nile and i tried so hard to get it finished before this podcast we're gonna have to finish it to be fair she's gotten to the part where rosa like salome is killed so we do i think she's relatively caught up on that element of it but she hasn't we're just before the reveal we were listening to it last night so david Suchet, by the way narrates the audiobooks oh, he played oh. poirot in the tv adaptation for those who aren't aware he's a phenomenal narrator of, of the audiobooks and i i really love his voices especially his voices for the female characters it's pretty funny anyway about, about the adaptations First and foremost, like my frustration with adaptations is not about their failure to address the sociopolitical context of Agatha Christie. Oh, that's my main issue. (laughs) (laughs) There are those issues on the first two. I just don't think they work as movies. I think they're poorly done. I think they look bad, just bad. On, uh, obviously, that is an issue, but in a way, I feel like the they're just so boring and unwatchable, and they focus on the wrong parts, and they do kind of hit you over the head with what it's trying to say, which is never enjoyable. Like, I just sitting through it, for me, was a bad time. 
See, I feel like the reason, and it's maybe it's good to go around and all say the reason that we like we don't like the adaptations. I, I think for me, it really is the botching of Poirot's character. I really feel like Branagh was like, I'm going to, cause, because he's playing Poirot, that I'm going to make this guy like awesome. And I'm just going to get to live out my fantasy of being a cool, awesome guy on screen. And it really just ruins the reality of, of this, this guy. And, you know, Poirot is this short, little weird guy with an egg-shaped head that is lopsided with crazy mustaches. But he thinks that he is just the coolest, handsomest, most like clever person on the entire planet. He does not like to get dirty. He would never chase after a criminal, but he has a very high opinion of his own intelligence. And I think that's actually the reason that the books are so good is and why he's my favorite detective is because his own belief in his own superiority is the reason that he will not do any of the reveals until the last second because he's so pompous about it that he refuses to share information until he gets to do his big reveal at the end of the book. And none of that really holds up in these adaptations. I feel like they really botch his character to a point where it just makes me frustrated to watch because it's basically just using Poirot and name only. And I think if you want to just make your own detective guy, that's cool. But this isn't really that. You know, this is just your... I feel like that's the reason that I don't like the adaptations personally. Well, Steph, you don't dislike them as much as some of us. So what are the redeeming qualities of these movies to you? Yeah, so I have to go back and say that I recently I didn't watch the the, the Agatha Christie's Poirot on PBS until very recently, <laughs> and so I didn't really have like what I felt was a good comparison. After watching a few episodes of that, I can see why <laughs> I can see better why people really why they appreciate David Suchet's and don't so much appreciate so yeah i saw the david Chusay's his after i i watched the movie so this is like i don't have any compa- while i was watching the movie i was enjoying it for its sake and i did yeah i he wasn't he certainly wasn't as arrogant and as true to the books in my memory and it's been like a, a while since i've read a lot of like it was really my childhood really in grade school that i uh, read a lot of agatha christie books so yeah, he wasn't definitely David Suchet's was more faithful to the book's description. And I recently watched this uh, YouTube documentary on him and he was talking about what he did. He did a lot of research when he was deciding how to enact his character and he just took notes. He read the books and just like took a bunch of notes, like factual notes about Hercule Poirot because as many people have said, we don't really know much about his backstory. But he, so he really, so the first thing on his list was he is not French, he's Belgian. (laughs) And then it went down into like just the way he walked. And yeah, it just like, he was so faithful to the books and, um, and in a way that Kenneth Branagh, I guess he's trying to do, I'm not quite sure what he's trying to do. Um, but I know he's trying to enact someone who's very shrewd just by like his facial expressions and his eyes, but that's really like, but that's not really arrogance to me as Hercule Pro is portrayed in the book. So it's like, just, I think, yeah, I can see now why people might not like Kenneth Branagh's <laughs> portrayal of Hercule Poirot. And that was kind of rambling, but, but yeah, for like both physically and the, the shape of his head, I even in retrospect, it just, it was kind of crazy how egg-shaped 
David Suchet's head <laughs> actually is. And yeah, so I it, like it's to think just that so- was the main casting qualification. They just looked at him and they were like, you've got the head for our guy. Yep. <laughs> Not very many people have that perfect egg shaped head. <laughs> and it didn't like in the movie when Kenneth Branagh's Hercule Poirot was measuring eggs and then he had his eggs. I guess he was going to eat them for, for breakfast and he had them. It, it just didn't have the same effect. Had it been David Suchet or someone or an actor who did have like an egg shaped head. <laughs> well, I think that that reminded me because that's I was hoping that was an homage to in the books. Faro said that he wishes that eggs were square because they would be much easier to manage and deal with and cook if they were square. So I, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but that's what that made me think of right away. <laughs> He's just that kind of guy. He really needs things to be very neat and orderly and meticulous. I think that maybe the reason that it falls apart a bit for me is when you create and you see this in across detective fiction when we talk about somebody like Sherlock Holmes and when we talk about sorry correct me what's his name from Glass Onion Benoit Blanc and when we talk about someone like Benoit Blanc right is this idea of the weird little genius and how do you balance when it comes to a performance of somebody who is unlikable and eccentric, but not in a way that makes the audience lose credibility of your detective? And that's a really delicate balance, right? Something about Benoit Blanc, who's just like a little bit happy to be there, is his like his likable nature. It's his earnest. that his earnestness that allows you to believe that he does see authenticity because he is so authentic himself, right? In, in a way that makes him a very seamless character. And I think that maybe the reason that I struggle so much with these contemporary adaptations is that I do feel like Rana hasn't really figured out how you be strange and also smart, which which is ridiculous. But at least that's for me the place where it falls a bit short. You know, even I feel like even like Robert Downey Jr. in those like Sherlock Holmes adaptations was very good at being like really weird, but also very smart. You know, I, I feel like it's so you, you, a lot of adaptations you get that. And I think uh, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're totally right. That that's that is the whole point. The quirky genius is really the trope. And and these aren't really hitting that mark. Yeah, it's interesting, Monica, you mentioned that because that was actually part of my article, which was that I think Rana looked at the brief of Poirot and was like, oh, this is all mannerisms. Like, I need some backstory. <laughs> I need a dark history, right? To like bring some meat into the role. But like, that's not what detectives are for. Like Echo writes about this, which is like detectives are just there to be slightly strange and familiar. So like, you know, Poirot always talks about his little gray cells. He, there's always a line about his mustache. Just so we get there, there's always a line about him not being French. And so we have these kind of familiar rips so we can go straight into the mystery and not have to bother with the detective. This is why we don't know about Poirot's backstory. This is why like, we don't know about Benoit Blanc's backstory. Like, because that's not important. What's important is that Blanc wears a cool little swimsuit that we all like, right? He's also really, he's a fruity little fruitcake. And that's the most important thing. Exactly. That's the most important thing. 
And Agatha Christie in that little article that I previously quoted says something basically along the lines of Poirot's never the center of the story. He like gives way to other people and it's their story. Like there's all, you know, there's not always, but there's always like the romance that works out Mm -hmm. or the family reunited or Hastings discovers something about himself. Um, For other people. I actually think that's such a good point and I never really thought about it, but you're right. I mean, in a way he's in the thick of it all, but he is a conduit for everyone else's personalities and he spends i mean listen at the end of the story when he does his monologue you know you see i mean he's a very pompous guy and that's his time to be it's the poirot show but so much of the story is him listening and learning about these other people and you're right in every story there's a million little melodramas that have nothing to do with him other people trying to achieve happiness or go their own way and he's so much more fixated on kind of pushing those things along than he is about making the narrative all about himself i mean he's very pompous in a way and and full of himself in a way for sure but i think it's such a good point to say that not actually the center of the story you know there's 10 other people who are really important to the narrative and he gives way to them constantly one of the parallels that i just keep thinking of is because I have a lot of familiarity with Ian Fleming's James Bond and, and spy fiction, and we have brought up uh, Agatha Christie's attempts at spy fiction too, is um, that the reason James Bond is named James Bond is because he's supposed to be the most boring, bland name that Ian Fleming could think of. And you are not supposed to know where James Bond buys his clothes or any of these things about him because the thing that you are supposed to be doing is noticing and observing other people. And that seems to be a real through line that I hadn't necessarily connected of the difference between sort of espionage and detective fiction. Yeah, it was a good point. And all I could think of was, yeah, that's another series I'd like to take some footnotes to. Oh, those Um, books. I feel like even just without exception, when I was thinking, actually saying that, just thinking about other detective stories, I think common threads throughout are, you know, these detectives, they're really smart, but they're really weird, right? They're quirky and they're not the center of attention. And I think that both of those are elements that make a lot of really good detective stories as good as they are, which I hadn't really thought about as much context of why these adaptations bother me so much. Because he really just said Poirot's going to be a main character. And he's yep. not going to be quirky or weird. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to be the center of attention and he's just going to be this weird action hero guy. So what we also learned is that spies are boring and detectives are fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, exactly. like, like, Perot doesn't even show up until like the back third of some of the books that yeah, he's in. Totally. And like, and I, I like, is a good example. Yeah. And I, I watched a couple of YouTube clips of Maroon the Orient Express 2017 to remind myself of some things. And I think like, I mean, Alfred Finney, who is in the Murder of the Orient Express in the 70s, like he has like a 20 minute monologue where he gives the solution and he gets his big moment. But it's really about the other people because, you know, you're watching Ingrid Bergman and uh, other people like react. But like in this Murder on the Orient Express, Rose, like he ditches the, you know, law and order stuff to like really give that man an arc. And then like same for Hein and Venice. And I really feel like not Pine and Venice, Death on the Nile. I'm so tired that I'm forgetting what movie is when. I think that Hein and Venice like, is the one that puts him least at the center. I mean, it's still there, but Ariadne, Oliver get some time and you know it, it's a story about grief and he and Michelle Yeoh get there back and forth so it, it felt more like 
weirdly, despite not feeling like a Perot story, it felt more like a Perot story. And even when evoking things like the plague in a time of, you know, COVID, it felt more like he was thinking about the contemporary in a way that, you know, like in hindsight, if you're just reading Agatha Christie, it might be like, oh, look, the past. But Agatha Christie was writing like as a contemporary. We just might not necessarily, I mean, we might, but people might not necessarily think, oh, yes, she was, you know, commenting on her own time. So, so in some ways, Hollywood in Venice was the most Agatha Christie of these movies to me, even though it was the least faithful. And also, for all the reasons you all cited earlier, it was not. But also, Michelle Yeoh was in it. So this just kind of on the, because this is the first time we've mentioned Ariad Oliver, I think, which is kind of crazy considering how long we've been talking. You know, so just because this is the first time we ever see her in one of these kind of run adaptations, you know, for context in the book. And this is all changed. She's an English history writer who meets Poirot for the first time in the story House of Cards. And he's kind of his friend, you know, th- throughout. He gets a little sick of her because she can be a lot, but they are good friends. You know, a lot of things about her, her character are changed. But, th- you know, that's all of that said. I actually think Tina Fey is a pretty good choice. I mean, I'm one, I'm a big, very big 30 Rock fan, but also if anyone watches Only Murders in the Building, oh, yes. Cindy Canning is a very good kind of transition into a role like this. And I think if I were to picture Ariadne Oliver as a person, I think I could see Tina Fey doing a very good job, even though I didn't love the creative liberties taken with her traits. I think Tina Fey was a good choice. Well, try this fan theory on for size. This is not mine. I read the Agatha Christie Reddit thoughts and saw this one. Agatha Christie throughout her life had a complicated relationship with Hercule Poirot. I guess people who write detectives for a really long time just eventually are like grumpy about it because they get sick of them. She called him a little creep at one point, I think. Um, he is. I mean, he is. She, she wasn't wrong. But like, because Ariadne Oliver is like a self-parody of Agatha Christie somewhat, someone theorized that the more like, I think we can say slightly hostile without like spoiling anything nature or like like some of the more tension between Poirot and Oliver is like paralleling Christie and Poirot's relationship. So that I think like that's... <laughs> do, yeah, seriously, do I think that was Brenna's intention? 100% no. I think he just wanted to use that as an added layer to the mystery. But I think that's a very cool idea and would make actually a lot of sense. So as like a fan theory, I love that. Even though I absolutely, there's no way that was his intention. I, I actually love that idea so question was was there a character like her character basically in halloween party or was that just new yeah, no, yes. so she was yeah. in halloween party yeah. can we can we do book spoilers are book spoilers okay no one's gonna read this book spoiler alert Spoilers if you don't want to be spoiled on Halloween party, which again is not very good and serves around child murder, skip ahead. Five, yeah, five there's, there's no relation to haunting in Venice. This is not related to the actual the movie. But in the book, she is at the Halloween party in the English countryside where the murder occurs. Yes, where the child's head is shoved into the apple bobbing, you know, basket or whatever. And uh, she then runs to Poirot um, and is like, hey, I need you to solve this case for me. So she is in the book. Um, 
she appears, I think, in four or five of, of Agatha Christie's Poirot stories. Um, and they consistently have a, a very positive like relationship, despite, again, I think he gets pretty frustrated with her because she can be a bit eccentric and she loves to talk. She also doesn't really like, she at no point has any kind of dwindling sales or anything like that. She's a very successful novelist. Her Sven Hearson character. So yeah, she's in that one. Okay, I'll have to read this. <laughs> it's honestly, if we tried to spoil Halloween Party, we would be here all night because like that book has a lot going on. Like it has more drama than a Grey's Anatomy episode. <laughs> yeah, it's it's less about the actual. It's it's a it's like a it's an experience. You know, it was actually something that infuriated me. So I got into Agatha Christie because of my dad. He's really avid fan. He read a lot of these books many years ago and kind of me getting into them was been a resurgence for us both to talk about them. Only because I said I read Halloween Party first time. He was like, I'm going to read this. I can't remember what happened. And then he I was sitting with him and he was like, I think and then he said he was like he guessed who did it. He had he was like like at the beginning of the book still. And I was so infuriated that he managed successfully to get it because I didn't really know until kind of the reveal at the end. So yeah, I think, but I think you could probably detect it with context clues. Not one of her strongest. That's one way to put it. <laughs> that is absolutely yeah, one way well, to put it. But also, maybe it's one of her strongest novels ever for the lols. This depends yeah. on one, I guess. Although, maybe like, like less about the initial murder, to be clear, and more about like just how wacky the plot goes over time. I want everyone to know. I, it, the very beginning you know, I'm gonna well, I'll tell you this <laughs> you know just for for people you know and this is again a bit of a spoiler so just keep that in mind not only is there one child murder there's almost two child murder towards the end of the book they try to kill another child the murderer so you know just there's a lot of that going around and it's it is the central point of the book it's like the climactic element is that they're gonna kill this other child and Poirot stops it from happening so you know just if you're gonna read it just be prepared for some child endangerment situation yeah i mean i get like I, that's you know one thing about agatha christie is that although the backs of the books do tend to warn you what the inciting incident might be there a lot of terrible things happen in these novels and i actually like the older i get the more i'm like why did i think that this was like the thing i wanted to read why did i find this comforting why did i want to like, like i actually think that like the abc murder may series once again to sing its praises because i discovered this yesterday like it's really interesting actually because it's like old poirot and like, sad poirot and like, feels the tragedy of things and it's again i think that to some degree it's kind of like you know some people probably won't like it because it puts him at the center but it does so in such a way and like there's a sprawling enough cast of characters over the course of a miniseries instead of it just being like a two-hour movie i think that like it really i'm not saying everything works but i think that like if there was ever a time where putting him at the center of something really works it might be this one. I think, though, just kind of going off of that element where talking about, you know, how many horrible things happen in books. The thing that we don't want really to talk about that happens on more than one occasion is that Poirot allows another murder to happen. A murder that he would yeah. have probably prevented, but then almost actively chose not to. I think probably the biggest example for me, and this is a major spoiler for one of the Poirot books. This is a major spoiler for Appointment with Death. Planning on reading Appointment with Death. Do not listen to what I'm about to say. Spoiler alert. But at the end of the 
book, he does his reveal. And the person who committed the murders was in the room next door, heard him give the reveal and committed suicide. And he knew that the person was in the room next door and that they would probably do that. And I'll say that there's also, you know, I, I don't want to spoil this, especially for Monica, because I really want her to read this one. So, I'm, you know, trying to do this without any spoilers. There is an, an element of that kind of goes on at the end of what I think is perhaps the best ever Faro's story, um, which is the murder of Roger Ackroyd. So there's a lot of times when he condones that kind of thing or else doesn't stop it from happening, which is very interesting kind of in the context of the, this larger conversation. Which I think is also... Anna, when you brought up the idea of why do we like such horrific things, I, this is another one where Brana really tried to hit us over the head with it in A Haunted Venice of children watch a scary puppet show and Poro asks like is this too scary for children and the response is well scary stories make the real world better and I think that it was really a choice to make haunting in Venice use a lot of horror movie tropes in terms of like there are a lot of jump scares there uh, we're really gonna lean hard into instead of child murders creepy child that is hanging out in creepy house and the visions of things that creep up on you in mirrors and bathrooms right like these are very much things that i'm expecting to get from like a blumhouse like low budget horror movie and not from a movie where everyone in the audience other than cni is 65 which arguably is Maybe why one of the other couples that was in the matinee with us might have tapped out halfway through. I don't know. But I would say that it felt like perhaps a mismatch of a genre. But this idea of what are we getting from sitting through these horrific things? Is it that the real world is better? Or because I would actually think that it's not that the real world is better, but it's rather that these films tie things up in a nice little bow, which is actually more comforting. And so it's actually better to watch something perhaps more horrific than real life because we don't all encounter murders at our fancy aging manor homes all the time, right? But it's really nice when we do go to a scary manor home, the villain gets caught and then we can go about our day. I mean, I think that you're right. And also that the fiction allows us to imagine different worlds too. And maybe this world we don't want to imagine or if we do we have to put it in the book because like the you know he wrote this movie during covid and mentions a plague but then like it's just haunting in the background right like there's no like it, it's the scary story and also weirdly in a way like the children who die in the original novel are kind of like you know like they're also hidden in the background sort of like like the death of children's like pushed to the side it happened a long time ago it was bad it was in the past like we can move on now we can just you know you know, we just don't need to be haunted by ghosts. You know, like, I feel like that's interesting in the context of like Christy of like thinking like, well, can we like push the past away and like tell new stories and just completely ignore the haunting of the old bad stuff? I don't know. I mean, I'd hesitate to ascribe like any reason to like why we are brought to these types of stories. I mean, there's obviously a comforting aspect and that is definitely a big draw, but like people will read the same book for different reasons, right? People oh, absolutely. find different things comforting, yeah. different things disturbing. And like, I think with the writing of Haunting in Venice, maybe writing about a plague was vaguely cathartic and other people would completely want to ignore it in their own catharsis. So I feel like that very many layered and like difficult to get into. Well, I do I... think that there is something to be said about the repetitive structure. And by repetitive, I mean like, 
throughout the books, right? The books are, they're not all exactly the same, but they're all structured in a similar way. Detective stories often are, and or and it's not all detective stories, but this type of detective story is always formatted in the same way. There is a murder. <laughs> we get to meet all the people, and then the murderer is revealed at the end, right? When you pick up an Agatha Christie book, most people like you're getting what you're expecting right and i think there's something to be said about that that's quite different than going in to watch a and i actually i think there's a lot of parallels speaking of honey and venice to to horror films right like you go to a slasher you know what you're getting into yeah there's you know, to to your point there's some, like there are some genre theorists like people who think about genre who say well this is like what genre is right there's the clue there's the detective there's the end result and if like something deviates from that like say the murderer is never revealed that is a branch that's no longer just mystery fiction proper like it's an aberration i think that you kind of have hit both of you the nail on the head of like so there's a reason i think that i really love faro stories so much is because of that really comforting structure like these actually are comfort books for me the reason that they're comfort books is because i always know that Poirot's gonna succeed in the end no matter what kind of happens throughout i know he's gonna catch the murderer every single time and it kind of gives me this comfort when i read these stories because that i know that's what the ending is going to be and i think i know a lot of other people who would say a similar thing kind of about that and kind of about that like very you know pat kind of genre right where it's like it's the same formula every time and i think you know I'll, I'll say this and i guess sorry for doing so many spoilers but you know recently monica and i saw has everyone seen mousetrap here am i gonna spoil it for anybody you have seen it i have not seen it so you oh, I I'm not going to say it then because I'm not, I don't want to, because I think that's what you they say about Mousetrap is that you're supposed to not, for people who haven't seen it yet. So ne ne never mind on that. But I think, you know, when that there's a deviation on that genre, I think it, it makes me enjoy it less arguably because you really just kind of want that formula to stay the same, the same. It feels very comforting. So what's we've resolved nothing? No. no, I think we maybe have resolved that different people like different things and how you handle sociopolitical context depends on the context of the thing sometimes. That was a muddle of words, so absolutely <laughs> resolved nothing. <laughs> well, we resolved that we do not like Kenneth Branagh's mustache. You know, Lindsay, we promised you before we start recording, you could ask everyone a question if you still oh, want yes. to. I would love to, actually. Monica wouldn't let me ask this before we started. What is everyone's favorite Hercule Poirot story? And it can be, you know, that could be novel, novella, short story, whatever you take it to. We were given time to prepare and I still haven't prepared. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, it, if it helps, I can start. My favorite, I think, is uh, in terms of my favorite reveal, I think it is Murder of Roger Ackroyd. I think that is the single best reveal in the history of the mystery genre, is my personal, very strong opinion. Though, of course, I won't say what it is because Monica has not read it yet and I'm very eager for her to do so. I have to point one of Death on the Nile to finish first. Yes, we're almost done. But yeah. So your favorite Monica is the mysterious affair at Styles. <laughs> I wouldn't go that. It has. I, she said it she, has Styles. She liked. I think she's liked Death on the Nile a lot more. Than she liked Styles. I think. Right. Yes, because everyone is bitchier. It's true. <laughs> That's usually given the amount that I try and bring up Gossip Girl on the podcast. How I decide whether or not I like content is 
privileged and unlikable characters are and how much they get what's coming to them. So for now, I'm going to pick Death on the Nile. I'm really excited for her to find out what happens. Uh, but what about you guys? What are your favorites? I would, now that I've thought about it, I think the Tuesday Club Murders, which is the Aga- the um, the Miss Marple short stories, they're kind of set up in this dinner party framework where like all these smart people have dinner together and then like Miss Marple's writer nephew like invites her to be nice and then they all like try to like come up with like a case each person brings a case in and sees who can solve it and Miss Marple just solves all of them and everyone's like ah this little old lady and I I think we talked about this pre-podcast but I think Miss Marple works particularly well in the short story format yeah I, I really like those ones yeah, so I would have to agree with Lindsay on the murder of Roger Ackroyd for the, I mean, it's a standout. Just, yeah, you have to read that <laughs> if you're going to read any Agatha Christie book. Definitely yeah. read that one. I'm so glad that you agreed. That makes me really happy. I, I'm going to pick something different. It, it is a great reveal. And in fact, I made my students read a article of criticism and I marked out the spoiler for the murder of Roger Ackroyd because I didn't want to mess with, like, mess it up for them because, like, it was in passing. And we weren't reading it. So I really do care. But I think that the ABC Murders has a really interesting novel structure. And I'm not just saying this because I watched the main series. I actually reread it recently. And I was like, oh, yes, this one's good. Well, the reveal in that one is also great. I would say that's easily top five reveals that she's done. And it certainly was like a a genre first. You know, I mean, would you say the same thing about like Orient Express and that like, you you know, everyone knows this one was Kenneth Branagh did an adaptation. You never previously had a situation where everybody did it, you know, you know, so I think. ABC Murders is another really good example of that kind of thing. A really good story. And it's really interesting to see how the different adaptations try and either mirror or not the way that Christie uses the novel to fool people. I, I mean, I remember like not a Poro novel, but like Endless Night and like just being like, what? When I got to like the end of the novel, because that was like the first big like Christie twist thing I read. Before we go, does anyone have any final thoughts? Poro's gay. It's my opinion. <laughs> Interesting. I think of him as asexual. I do too. You know what? I think there's also a, there's also a case to be made for asexual. I think I would be happy with either. But also, he does really love his Hastings. So, so I saw like, some really good fan art where he had like a tattoo that was like a heart with Hastings written inside it, <laughs> and I absolutely love that. So question, like he calls, I noticed in, in the Agatha Christie's Poirot that he calls only men mon ami. Like what, why is that? Does anybody know? Because women well, we are know why. Aren't available oh. to be friends. I, I can't come up with a better answer than that, really, because I, that's, that's kind of what I thought. Men are people. <laughs> no! I was just no. thinking that. No, they are his children. <laughs> he wants him to confess to Papa Perot. And this is what oh I my mean. God, seriously, like, he does say that like yes. verbatim. Oh my yes. God, he's so weird. It's yeah, gross. This is, why, this, this is what I mean when I say like, it's just so embedded in the novel that there should be like a footnote that's like, this is not good. <laughs> he is a creep. I get the Chrissy said so. Publishers you know call what? me. We resolve that for sure. But yeah, yeah, he's a creep. All right. And well, thank you for joining our what should be a now regular meeting of the We Hate Tennis Brown Fan Club. <laughs> is it a fan club if we hate him? Uh, I mean, his, I feel like Love. he's done a couple of good movies, but then he also did this in Artemis Fowl. So, like. <laughs> You know, stop letting that man touch literature. (laughs) 
Much Ado About Nothing was good. Yeah, I was gonna say he learned. He can do Shakespeare. Also, he can I want to play. Have, yeah. I don't hate his mustache. I hate how he treats his mustache. His mustache, like literally, was fine. I hate like, the I back. Like, yeah, the backstory mustache. Yes, it is the concept of the mustache in the film that frustrates me. Not his literal facial hair. That's okay. Um, Acceptable. Yeah. But we covered some of this, but we should definitely do a mystery fiction episode, if only because I said I would do one like for three years and I still haven't done it. And hopefully some of you can come back and we can talk more about the conventions of mystery fiction and maybe more about Miss Marple because like, she's great. Oh yeah. Great. No arguments. I booked a show, Mav. Look at me. (laughs) (laughs) And now we just have to do the outro, Hannah. Okay. All right, let's try this. Okay. Thank you all for joining us. If you would like, oh, yes. Okay. We got to, okay. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to plug something, you can do that now. And Lindsay, is there anything that you'd like to plug? It could be your social media such that social media exists or like things you want people to read or causes you care about. Oh boy. I don't really have anything to plug. If you want to follow my meme page uh, on Instagram, it's at Lindsay underscore loves underscore memes. I post 10 memes every day and they're pretty funny. That's all I got. Amazing. I mean, that's better than what I plug, which is nothing. Uh, Steph, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Thank you for asking, but no, not really. I'm not mad, so I'm not going to be mad about that. Tiffany, is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, you can follow me on social media at Exploding Arrow, pop, thepopverse.com. Check us out. We've got some pretty cool stuff, including an article about, you know, Kenneth Branagh and the mustache. <laughs> Thank you. Monica, is there anything you'd like to plug? Well, you know, Hannah, since all of the social medias have kind of died and we haven't decided where to migrate to yet um started directing people to my letterbox i don't know how i feel about it but you know <laughs> i'm gonna put my Kenneth Brenna watch list on there so if you would like to follow me there that's at monica marvelous great as usual you can just give up on trying to follow me anywhere <laughs> but you know support an abortion fund you can find one at the national network of abortions if you don't know your local one okay Okay, so you can follow the show on Facebook at Vox Popcast. Honestly, I don't know, like, if X or, like, because X is going to die and we lost Instagram. Maybe one day we'll go to the other side and that's like a joke about Blue Sky I've seen people do. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's too much to do all of them. So we'll figure it out. We're not on LinkedIn. Don't try and find us there. You can find us on YouTube, though. Like, we haven't updated anything in a while, but that's at, like, like on Vax Podcast, you can ring our bell and maybe Mav will get excited again. If you enjoyed listening to the show, and we certainly hope you do, and I certainly hope I'm not screwing this intro, no outro, up, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get podcasts. I think a bunch of those have disappeared, too, so I'm not going to try and listen. Spotify is a thing I've heard. Yeah, maybe we're on there. But you can give us a five-star review and tell us that you like us more than we like these current horror adaptations. I would also accept one-star reviews for horror adaptations submitted to IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes, but a five-star review for us would be better. Yeah, so we also do shows about a bunch of other stuff in pop culture. I don't know what's coming up next, but... You can by going to voxpopcast.com where we post blogs and ask for comments and then you can give us your opinion. And sometimes we select guests based on those comments. So that could be really cool. And you can find past episodes where 
Actually, Monica and I have complained about these adaptations before. I think mostly me and Monica's egged me on. In fact, I think our box office show is me just saying I'm going to be disappointed by a high end invest again, aren't I? So I think that's all of the outro stuff. Mav, good luck editing this, or maybe you'll just re-record it. Who, who can say? But thank you again to our guests for being here, and thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>